everybody. It is your host, Jacob Schrader, and we are back with another another episode of the Esports Forever podcast, a part of the Zen Sports Podcast Network. Today, I'm joined by a very exciting guest. I'm joined by one of Zen Sports' two new hires, Ryan Hebert, our community manager. Ryan, how are you doing? I'm doing really well, Jacob. Thank you so much for having me. And hello, everyone listening today. It's a pleasure to be able to be here to talk to you all and to join the Zen Sports team. Awesome. So, you know, Ryan, it was, it was, a, it was an awesome process getting to know you a little bit during the hiring process. Um, but, you know, I, I think there's a lot of cool stuff about you that our community would love to know about. Uh, what stood out to me the most uh, for you was your experience in Pokemon, competitive Pokemon with, with all of the trading card elements that go along with it. Uh, I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about your experience with the Pokemon scene, how it got started, uh, and what you're doing still today to remain a part of it. Yeah, Jacob, I'd love to. Thank you so much. My time in the Pokemon community got started my, I want to say my junior year of high school. I noticed or had kept noticing that every summer there was a World Championships that was being streamed online on Twitch.tv, on YouTube.com before Twitch really got uh, up and you know big in 2015 2016 you know worlds was going on and i i found out that local events were being held all around the united states these larger events were called regionals and then smaller events have different names as well that are uh kind of uh supposed to foster your local pokemon community rather than regional events which in the united states every year before covid there were usually around 12 to 15 different events happening in states all around the US. So I said to myself, wow, I'd really like to try to get to one of these tournaments one day. But you know, uh, being only 16, 17 years old at the time, um, I couldn't I, I didn't I wasn't driving yet. You know, I was learning how to drive, maybe I was like 15, right. And so I didn't know how to drive. And my parents weren't super big on video games. So obviously, that was not a huge sell for them when it came to hey, can I go participate in this like day long event for uh, $50, you know, absolutely. It took me a number of years to be able to, you know, grow up a little bit and then provide the opportunity for myself. And that's exactly what I did. My first big regional event was actually at 2015 Boston worlds. I'm based out of uh, new England. So because of that, uh, it was like the really like the first big event I could go to. Yeah. And, and you were playing in these events as a, a, a Pokemon master? So, yes and no. I was nowhere near the level of a Pokemon master or being a professional player when I first started. So, mm. when I first started, uh, they have different side events. And they actually have a like uh, open event the day after the official event for the previous season begins, if that makes sense. They call it the 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 open, whatever city you're in, and then the open. So it was the Boston Open is what I played in. Cool. Yeah, so I think they do something similar to that with Call of Duty. Uh, I think a lot of the esports leagues do that. They'll have kind of a, a home series, and then they'll have an open. Uh, in, in COD, they call it Challengers, but it's it's often for some of the, you know, the, the amateur players, the grassroots players to play, have a good time, uh, and and get some some viewership from it. Uh, I assume that's kind of what the the Pokemon opens were like. Yeah, you know the the opens were not streamed per se because Worlds was going on, and so all of the production that was being done at that event was for the World Championships. However, 
regional events that happen across uh, the United States and all over the world, those are uh, streamed usually by the Pokemon Company. Or in the past, when the Pokemon Company wanted to take a step back, they decided to use third-party uh, streamers and stuff like that to be able to produce those. So, you know, I could go on forever, but the the short form of how I really got started in my community is that, uh, you know, I didn't really have an opportunity to really get going until college. In high school, I had a few local stores close to me where I could go and play. Those were really, really cool. And honestly, I was really fortunate to be able to have those opportunities to get to know some local players in the community around me. It wasn't until when I was a freshman in college at DePaul University in Chicago, I actually spent the, the past five years out there for school and then an extra year just to kind of live there. But uh, I, I was in Chicago and I said to myself, there aren't any local events in Chicago proper in the city. The only events that were available were in the suburbs. But if you live in the city, you don't have a need for a car. If you live in the suburbs, it's it's vice versa. And so I said, how could it possibly be that the third largest city in the United, in, in the United States doesn't have events at local game stores, which there are plenty of in Chicago? And so I said, well, we're going to change that. So, you know, the first thing I said to myself is, how can I as a player travel around to events and how can I afford that? Because let's be real, Jacob, before COVID and even now, the price of flights and hotels alone, hundreds of dollars, if not more than $1,000 per trip for just, you know, travel and lodging alone. And so that answer came to me by being a part of my uh, Pokemon organization on campus at school, which was just a fantastic opportunity uh, by itself. Yeah. So, you know, when you say uh, you, you went and played in these Pokemon tournaments, uh, were you guys playing with the physical cards or had the game moved online at that time point? It was actually both. So, you know, I there are two big factions of the Pokemon competitive scene. There's the trading card game and then there's the video game. The trading card game obviously made its debut uh, around the same time that the video game made its debut because... The video game came out first, um, and then they were like, wow, this is pretty good. And so they released the card game, which was actually originally produced by Wizards of the Coast. Eventually, it got so big that it moved on. The Pokemon company said, okay, we're going to do our own thing from here on out. Thanks, Wizards. Appreciate you. But uh, yeah, we're going to do our own thing. But events are run where players show up with a 60-card deck at events IRL. The online application that they have for the trading card game you know, it's it's outdated and it's actually being re-updated and uh, replaced by a new uh, software in the coming year. So players are are hoping to see some like really great improvement and hopefully uh, increased competitive support for the training card game online. But at its base, the game is meant to be played in person, right? You know, mm -hmm. sit across from another player, you know, and uh, play out that strategic card game against them, right? And so at these events, uh, they were usually split up into uh, training card game events or video game events. So I uh, I started out uh, being a tournament organizer, being able to host the video game. And then over time, I would, uh, you know, sometimes help out with the card game. But I actually was really, really focused on the video game. That's really mm -hmm. where my time went. And if you know anything about the video game, it's heavily, it's heavily like chess, where it's all about board positioning, right? 
But uh, the way I like to describe it for people who don't know about it is that it's chess, and then on top of that, it's rock, paper, scissors. And then on top of that, it's like rolling a 20-sided die with a random number generator. And, uh, you know, the really cool thing about Zen Sports, Jacob, that I've noticed is that the esports that uh, we are promoting, uh, a lot of them have different elements of this where there's either board positioning because there's, you know, we're literally planning on having chess tournaments and stuff like that, or uh, you have stuff like Splinterlands, which, you know, it's, uh, it's like an online card game similar to Pokemon, a little bit different, obviously, but there's, you know, a lot of RNG that sometimes goes into this type of stuff and really like that's the biggest thing um that is similar to pokemon right yeah there's a ton of rng that goes into these games because your your deck of cards is face down you don't know what you're going to be pulling uh for that next card right uh so it, it's it's a lot of fun it's really exciting and so i i spent primarily all of my time in the pokemon community uh with one goal if i was going to be a player i was going to give back as much as possible and so in my time with Pokemon, and it's been about uh, four to five years now, maybe close to six, I have been a player, a uh, Pokemon Company tournament organizer, a Pokemon Company judge, and then I've actually also been a commentator for the game as well. I, in 2019, I did a stint with a third-party group where I was the head producer and commentator for their team, so I re would recruit commentators from the local scene players that knew each other that were recognizable that i could bring on that knew the game and that could talk about it and honestly it was such a great experience i was able to do uh five regionals that year and uh yeah it was just a really holistic and fun experience but overall i'm grateful for the time i've had with it for the community i've been able to build prosper and just join with it overall because i can confidently say i can go to any state in the united states and I will have a friend there because of Pokemon. It's 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 just amazing how esports and gaming works. And so, you know, to this day, I am still an active player, still an active TO, but the Pokemon company has not resumed organized play uh, specifically for in-person events because of COVID. But, you know, in the past year, they did a great job of hosting four online tournaments called Players' Cup for the TCG and the VGC. And Jacob, I don't know how well-versed you are in Pokemon, but in the past year as well, they actually released Pokemon Unite, a Pokemon MOBA similar to that of League of Legends. And uh, that was just officially announced as a competitive event uh, for the Pokemon 2022 Worlds this upcoming year. So they are really building out their brand with as many different types of games as possible for the Pokemon company and the scene in general. Wow, that's that's awesome. A Pokemon MOBA sounds sounds pretty exciting. They have it, it a lot is, of yeah. characters to choose from. You know, they've got over 890, in fact, Jacob, that they could add <laughs> to the game. So they've got an unlimited cast of characters. And, you know, if you, you want to talk about longevity, Jacob, uh, that's that's one way to do it, right? You You bring out a MOBA with like a cast of 10 to 15 Pokemon, right? And from here on out for the next how many years, if you drop one Pokemon every business quarter, theoretically, you're you're going on for, for a long time for that one game. So yeah. it's pretty incredible. That is unbelievable. They basically have, I mean, that's what makes League of Legends so appealing is they have the huge character pool to choose from, right? You know, certain in, in worlds, certain characters or are, are getting banned 
right? And and every quarter, as you said, they're adding new ones. And Pokemon basically has as nine hundred characters to to add to their MOBA and um, growing. You know, um, I think that's the biggest thing is that they're always introducing new types of of forms or variants of Pokemon. So that's going to be the coolest thing in the future to see. You know what they're going to do uh, with with Pokemon and their different forms and you know, new Pokemon in general, because for right now and for the foreseeable future, the poke the company is just going to keep producing new games. So I'm very excited. Yeah. And and another thing is all these Pokemon cards. And I want to go back to what you mentioned about how the game, the, the, the online game came out actually before the cards did. But these cards, they all have multiple abilities too, right? And that's exactly what you need in a MOBA game. You need some abilities that are are easy to get do a little bit of damage or, or a tiny stun. And then you need, you know, powerful ones uh, that cost more to produce. So it's, it's kind of crazy how well the game is already set up for a MOBA uh, ecosystem. I'm, I'm actually really excited to see what they can do with, with that game. You said the game has actually released. It's been released for a while now. Um, they released it initially on Nintendo switch. And then a few months later, they actually released it to mobile. So They've got a huge mobile following alongside it being uh, released on Nintendo Switch consoles as well. So really, really cool to see. That is awesome. So, you know, when you, when you said that the the original Pokemon game came out before the cards did, you're talking about the cards from 20 years ago, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's that's uh, what else could I be talking about? Yeah. Those those classic nostalgic cards that you and I can look back on and be like, wow. I was like a young a young toddler, and I somehow have recollection of looking at uh, Charmander uh, uh, that's been, you know, painted and, and drawn up by, uh, you know, Mitsuhiro Arita, uh, one of the original artists for, for Pokemon, right? You know, I, I look, I think back and I'm like, yeah, Charmander, Charizard, yeah. Blastoise. I remember too. I was actually more into Yu-Gi-Oh. Um, oh, yeah. But it was it was at summer camp and everyone would have cards and either you were into Yu-Gi-Oh or you were into Pokemon. Uh, that's kind of how it was. I yeah, I can agree with you there. People, you know, people liked Yu-Gi-Oh. They liked Pokemon. Um, I had Yu-Gi-Oh cards, but I didn't understand how the game worked. You know, you look at a Yu-Gi-Oh card and I'm going to be honest with you, you know, as a kid and even today, I didn't understand how the game functioned. But you know what? The thing about Pokemon, simple math. Right. You've got HP and then you've got the damage that each move does. And, you know, the really cool thing that I love about Pokemon Magic the Gathering, all these different card games that translates over to one of the big games that Zen Sports has, Splinterlands, is that, you know, a lot of those cards would either just have moves on them, right? Just be a regular card or they'd be, uh, you know, an attacker with some type of ability that would either aid other Pokemon or... Uh, aid aid you know that specific pokemon itself or you know there's different terms in the community that you can use for pokemon like i'm trying to think of the specific specific like specific terms that some of the decks have but basically it, it you know one, one of the biggest ones has to be draw power i think that's the correct term but uh you know you you place a, a pokemon card down right and it might have an ability that says uh, once per turn draw three extra cards that's huge yeah you know, to be able to draw from your deck or uh, once per turn, uh, poison your opponent's Pokemon, uh, active, active Pokemon on the field. Um, I, you know, playing Splinterlands recently, 
I found that, you know, there are various cards with different abilities. I'm more so like Magic the Gathering, but it's just so cool to see how those cards interact with each other uh, in, in Splinterlands when you're playing the game. So it's been a really, really cool way to kind of just like try to get familiar with this game and uh, kind of relate it back to what I've I've been doing and what I've known for, for quite a while now. Yeah, the, the tradable card genre is so huge and there's so many games with with really you know unbelievable IP around them, uh, Pokemon is there, Yu-Gi-Oh is there, but you know then games like Hearthstone and Gods Unchained. So Gods Unchained is a, a crypto version of Hearthstone. Uh, okay, you know to me the 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 card games bode perfectly well for an NFT based ecosystem and economy, right? It you know the cards are so simple, it's so tangible that you just own the card and and that's it. There's nothing else that can be said. You know, there's no unique, you know, weapon abilities. It's just you you own the card or you don't. Uh, has Pokemon done anything with NFTs? So they haven't um, because I think, you know, it's still a relatively newer uh, process and project. But the thing is, is that the Pokemon company and the support they have for esports is actually pretty new. They've been running tournaments for at least two decades. But to say that Pokemon are esports is actually a controversial topic within the community. Without too much official support, you know, stuff has been going on for tournaments, but a lot of people look at those and say, you know, is a few thousand dollars at a regional event truly enough support for the scene? Because you can't live off of $3,000 trying to win back-to-back -back tournaments every month. That's just That's just not possible for an adult that has so much going on for them right whereas you know you look at the magic circuit and for the longest time they had the pro series where they had 20 or 30 people signed on for this pro series where they were paying them to show up to events uh year after year and the company was like actually investing in the players in the scene and so more recently there's actually been a job posting by uh chris brown one of the uh higher-ups at the Pokemon Company for an eSports manager at the Pokemon Company. So they are looking to dive headfirst into eSports at Pokemon. So it is a really good sign for competitive players alike uh, for the future of uh, for eSports at Pokemon. So yeah, it's very awesome. exciting. But they have not dived into NFTs yet. And, you know, I actually I actually have something on this topic, you know, uh, of, of owning a specific card, right? And I kind of looked at Splinterlands a little bit, and I really liked the way they did it. And so correct me if I'm wrong, but, you know, there was an Alpha series, there was a Beta series, and since then they've had other, other series as well. The problem with having a selective number of cards in a trading card game, uh, trading card game uh, uh, depending on your format, um, you know, you may be at a disadvantage if you were not a part of that original set to get an original card that has an ability or does something that's really good. So IRL cards for the Pokemon Company, for example, there is an expanded format. It's a lot like Modern for Magic the Gathering. And in that, it allows you to use cards legal from uh, sets black and white all the way to the most recent cards. So cards that were given out at the World Championships in 2011, 2012, 2013... Um, one of the one of the biggest cards that comes to mind is Tropical Beach, I believe is the, is the correct name. It allows you once per turn to get rid of all the cards in your hand and draw seven new cards 
It's a stadium card. It sits on the field. It's it's incredible. It's broken. They have not been reprinted since 2013 Worlds. So if you own that real-life card, similarly to, let's say, an NFT, uh, let's say there was an NFT project that worked like that as well. You print those cards once you never have them again. You're hosting tournaments in that format. How much do you think those cards are going to be, Jacob? Yeah. To try to get your hands on one. I'll tell you right now, to get your hands on a set of four tropical beaches, it's going to cost you thousands of dollars. Yeah. You and, see you that know, for in the, And you see that in Splinterlands just a little bit. However, the thing that Splinterlands has answered that I saw a little bit is that they will they will reprint cards from older sets, but it's going to have a different art. It's going to have a little bit of a different rarity, and people are going to be able to distinguish when those cards were printed. But when you gatekeep players out of older cards in, in a project like that, I think that's the biggest problem that people have. And so I think the answer has to be reprinting those older cards so that, that yes, they devalue the older card, but you're also giving accessibility of the powers of that card to newer players or else, you know, I don't stand a chance if I try to enter a tournament and I don't have uh, $10,000 on me to buy what I need for a deck like that. I think I feel like that's the biggest problem uh, when approaching an NFT based card game. But I think Splinterlands has done a great job through their rental system and then also through reprinting. But like I said, giving it a different rarity, making sure that people know it's not the original card, but it's going to do the same exact thing as the as the original card. Yeah. So, you know, NFT games are are pretty similar to in person, right? The the, the physical cards. Uh, and your example, you know, with the the, the set of four that would go for a thousand dollars, that's something I talked about last episode with Nate about you know blockchain games. They can't release a card that is that is going to break the meta, right? They can't do it because if they do and they try to take it back. That will just destroy their game, right? With NFTs, you can't you can't hit the edit button, you can't hit the undo button. So, you know, that's one of the things that always worries me about these games is that they'll somehow release a card into the meta that will just you know render so many other cards worthless, right? It'll completely change the the market of the game. And if they want to, you know, if they want to fix it, they have two options: they can either take out that card from the game, which would you know be horrible, or they can basically you know, put in so many new cards that can compete with it, all of the old cards will just, you know, not have worth. Uh, you know, I, I think it's a really challenging thing for, you know, teams building blockchain games that use cards to, I mean, really all blockchain games, you can't hit the undo button. It just can't be a part of your equation. Uh, so you need to figure out how to balance things well before you actually implement them. Yeah. So play testing is huge and uh, card interactions with other cards is always going to be, one of the biggest things you can do for that. But yeah, you know, uh, didn't mean to get off on a whole long tangent about my love for uh, Splinterlands here as I'm, you know, learning more about it. But, you know, so far it's been really cool to see. So very excited to be a part of this Zen Sports team and be a part of these uh, emerging esports and, you know, blockchain-based games. Uh, it's it's a lot of fun. Yeah, I, I agree. It's it's awesome to have you. And, you know, you, you you're... To be honest, you're a very interesting guy. You do a lot of stuff. So, you know, tell us about yourself. Uh, you know, what other stuff are you doing besides esports? I know there, there's certainly a lot of it, but I think just in general, 
you know, anything you can share with us, the community about uh, some of the, I mean, I, I know what it is, but I'd love for you to, to share. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, uh, on top of esports and everything like that, uh, I said to myself quite a long time ago that, you know, I think it would be so cool to have the opportunity to, you know, create content, be a content creator and stuff like that. So, you know, I am not the biggest creator out there by any means, but I've, I've got some small followings on Twitch. I put out YouTube videos occasionally, stuff like that. It's, it's a good time, but more recently this past, uh, this past year in the summertime, you know, what I am first and foremost, besides being the new community manager at Zen Sports, is I'm actually a professional actor, entertainer, singer. And so with that, I, um, you know, was actually actively searching the job market for auditions and, and different events like that. And like many actors and uh, entertainers out there in the world who might be uh, around my age, I'm, I'm only 24. Um, for a lot of us, you know, we get out of school and we say to ourselves, okay, how can we try to make a living but also go and do what we love at the same time? And for a lot of people, they either become real estate agents, they go work in a restaurant, they they go and try to do things that are going to make it easy so that if they get a show, they can try to, you know, work around everything. And so for me, for the longest time, um, you know, I was I was doing that. And I had a bunch of side gigs and stuff like that that I was doing on top of trying to find shows. But... Jacob, I don't know about you, but uh, I don't know when the last time is you've been to a live theater for a show. Uh, you know, there was a little bit of opportunity this past summer uh, and and fall to be able to do so, but with the uptick of COVID all around the uh, all around the world, theater once again is just becoming increasingly increasingly hard to do in person, and that's really just such a bummer of a reality for someone like myself who, you know, I I love film, I love. Uh, on-screen type work, but it's not the stuff that I want to wake up in the morning and say, yeah, I'm going to go do this today. For me, living in the moment, creating experiences that can only happen once, that's live theater, baby. And that's what I'm all about. And that those type of opportunities are really, really hard to come by with COVID right now, even though every show is pulling actors from past companies, uh, years past, to just try and make sure that those shows can keep running. Because someone goes down with COVID, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna pull someone from from like the few people that we have um, that's uh, you know waiting in the wings to be able to get on stage and do this role, but they can only do that so many times before they run out of a, of a reserve of people. And so right now, you know, there there is sort of a panic in the community to try to find people to be in shows, but you don't want to just pick up any schmo off the street to be in a show. And so that's just, that's made it increasingly hard for me to find work. And so this summer, after submitting for several auditions in the springtime, you know, last year in the spring, COVID was still bad. People were still inside. And so not, there wasn't a lot of opportunity compared to this, to this summer and fall. So I said, well, if I can't find it, I'm going to create it. I'm going to make it myself. So I approached some local theater owners in my town here in Maine. And I said to them, can I put on a two-hour solo show featuring myself, just me, and a bunch of Sinatra and musical theater songs? They told me yes. They said, you have three weeks. Good luck. We'll see you then. Wow. And so in three weeks, I self-produced, uh, self-created, uh, made posters, self uh, did all the promo myself, 
going around town, putting up posters, making the posters, picking those up, um, social media, everything. It was incredible. It really was. That's awesome. So, so do you prefer uh, filmed theater or or kind of live, like almost musicals on Broadway would be? Uh, I'm, you know, I'm a big fan of live theater. You know, I, I I love film and movies in general, but I have done the most work on stage, live theater in general. I've done over in my, I'm only 24. I've done over 30 different shows on stage as an actor. I've directed some shows. I've actually written some shows too. I'm self-published on Amazon with a play. Like, it's a lot of fun. That's awesome. That's awesome. So, you know, growing up, I assume you you maybe saw a few musicals. Do you have a favorite? You know, asking anyone in the theater world, Jacob, if they have a favorite musical is a very dangerous question. Because, <laughs> you know, there are just so many to choose from that it's it's so hard to just pick one. But, you know, I can't argue with the fact that every time I've gone to New York in the past, all I want to go see is Avenue Q off Broadway. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. It's um it's a 18 plus musical. I just want to put that out there for anyone listening. But it's basically Sesame Street for adults. It's hilarious. It's about the main character is uh trying to, you know, search through life post college and figure out what to do with himself. And pretty much that's the entire cast. You've got people of varying ages there, but a lot of them in their late 20s, early 30s trying to figure out what to do with life. Uh, not being the most rich, not having the most stable of jobs, just trying to make it in the world, trying to find themselves, and that's all uh, all done through puppets. So it's it's actually hilarious. Um, it, the actors are all dressed in black, uh, and uh, you know uh, you can see their face and everything. But you know you're watching the puppets. You know it's so it's a lot of fun. That's cool. I like that a lot. So I used to go to a lot of musicals when I was a kid, and I have to say my favorite, far and away, was Hairspray. Uh, oh, I just okay. thought it was so unbelievable. Uh, the, the songs were so funny. I love the female actress who performed as the, the main character. Tracy Turnblad. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. I, I love that one. So I saw uh, the Book of Mormon. Mm. Uh, oh, my goodness. Maybe two years ago. Three, maybe actually it was probably five years ago at this point. Um, that one was was pretty good, too. It was funny. But I got to say, Hairspray was like next level, like the funniest, the best music. I bought the the CD afterwards. I mean, granted, I think I was six at the time. Yeah. But uh, that, you know, that to me, it, it was just an unbelievable experience. And I, I agree that the whole live element of, of theater, it, it makes for a little bit more excitement, right, than, than something being filmed. You really feel for those actors and actresses when they're out there. You know, you're, you're wishing them the best and and hoping that they deliver. You know how hard they worked. Um, mm -hmm. yeah, it's, oh, yeah. it's just so exciting when they nail something and you know they do it and they're smiling. Um, it's it's really a wholesome moment. So yeah. uh, I got to agree that the the if you're doing theater, live theater is the way to go. Yeah, I, I'm with you there. And that that's really interesting. Hairspray. OK, yeah, it's you know, it's a great show. Um, and in the theater, there's always the question of what stories should be told and why. And I think for the longest time, Hairspray has been, uh, you know, a really important story to be told because, you know, uh, theater is about communication and storytelling at its base. And so uh, sometimes there's a lesson to be had with a lot of shows. And so, you know, Hairspray uh, takes the issue of segregation and, uh, you know, it, it, it puts it in a way that's not too offensive to, to white or, you know, any, any person of color's audience. Uh, but 
it is it is a way to talk about and to experience segregation um because you know while that doesn't necessarily exist in any law anymore it doesn't mean that it isn't still happening around the world in the united states in some places so you know it's it's uh it's a conversation starter and so it, you know i i i do love the fact that uh you know you, you love hairspray for its humor and you know for what's going on in it because i got to tell you there's quite a bit in it that is hilarious that's funny um witty charming lovable and also serious and sad and at the same time uh is very moving so it's it's a fantastic <clears throat> excuse me um it's a fantastic show but uh yeah yeah that's really cool jacob yeah i i, I agree i think it did a good job of communicating uh you know basically wrapping something that can be difficult to talk about and doing it in kind of an environment that that gets people thinking gets people engaged um you know i i i really i really agree i think hairspray was was great in what it did um so you know in addition to theater uh you spent some time at the paul university what did you do with the the esports program there were you focused on esports were you more focused on theater at the paul tell us a little bit about your time there yeah, so I, I like to think of my time at DePaul as three different areas of focus. So one of them was theater, because I was accepted into their conservatory, the theater school at DePaul University, uh, one of the top 25 institutions in the country for acting, theater arts. It's a really great place. But the reason why I loved going there for my BFA is because they had a BFA that acted like a BA. A BFA usually means that you're only doing theater. That's it. Nothing else. But I wanted a little bit more, and so I actually double majored. And so I had a BFA in theater arts, but then I was also a international relations political science major. And so part of my time is spent focusing on theater. Part of my time is spent uh, focusing on politics. And then outside of my major, um, it was esports. And so I, you know, I, I divided up my time equally over the four years I was there. So when I started out, you know, a lot of my time was in the theater. And then in my second and third years, uh, you know, that sort of shifted to focusing on esports in my free time, uh, you know, still doing some theater. And then uh, eventually by uh, my third year and fourth year, you know, I was still doing theater type stuff, but I'd, I'd done a lot of the prerequisites. And so I was doing a lot of politics and then I was actually doing a lot of esports. And so the esports wasn't a part of my academic schedule. So just to give you an idea of what I was doing, Jacob, I was a full time college student as a double major with probably five to six classes uh, in my schedule. Most of those met twice per week. And then on top of that, I had uh, between three and five part-time jobs at a time. And then on top of that, I was uh, part of the Pokemon organization and then a part of the DePaul Esports organization on top of that as well. And then I was a professional Pokemon player going out and playing and doing that as well. So I, I did a lot. But uh, yeah, with the esports program at DePaul, the biggest thing that I was kind of an expertise in was providing uh, monetary funding for organizations that wanted to go out and do stuff. So there was a fund that every student, when they paid tuition, put about $50 in per, per trimester. And so I did some more research and found that that fund could be used by different organizations on campus in order to go to events, to host events, to to get really whatever you needed because organizations can't can't 
you know, really do stuff without money. And so if sororities and frats can access this funding, so can other student organizations on campus. And so DePaul Esports was a little bit different than that because they had their own funding source, but they also could access this fund as well. And so my expertise and time with DePaul Esports really came with making sure that we could send our players off to events all around the country, make sure that they could get there safely, have the travel, have the lodging that they were looking for, and really make it a wholesome experience for DePaul and for the players uh, as well. And so I made sure that uh, if if they needed someone to advocate for funding for esports, whether it was for the Pokemon Club or or DePaul Esports in general, I was there to do my best and to try to, you know, uh, rule shark the university and the people in charge of the, the funding as much as possible. Because what ended up happening, Jacob, is that I would abide by their rules, by their policies so well that with every passing year I was there, they would actually try to instill new rules and policies to try to make it harder and harder for students to access said money that was supposed to be available to them. So I was always two steps ahead of them wow. and always got the money I needed. So I'll tell you right now, I actually I spent more than $12,000 in that uh, fund, you know, that fund, uh, more than $12,000 was spent on the pork Pokemon organization on campus alone for travel, uh, lodging, and then for tournament fees as well. And then for some on-campus community activities uh, too. So it was a great time. Um, I had a lot of fun and, you know, I just loved being a part of what we, of what we were doing. And if it wasn't for DePaul Esports, I actually never would have started playing League of Legends, which I know, you know, it's a, it's a curse for the rest of my life, right? But, uh, you know, it's it's really a, a great thing, and uh, I'm really glad I was a part of it. That's awesome. Uh, you know, doing all that stuff in college, it's it's really spectacular. Um, you know, I'm, I'm really glad to have you as a member of the team, and I can't wait to see what we're going to do on the, the community content side of things to really ramp up all of these tournaments we've been hosting. Um, you know, I think it's just going to add value to our ecosystem. It's just going to get, you know, more people engaged with Zen Sports Esports and open up more opportunities for gamers to, to play the games they love. Yeah, Jacob, I'm, I'm in full agreement with you. So excited to get started here. And uh, I hope that folks will start seeing some changes real soon after this podcast. It's going to be great. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, of course. Uh, so that wraps it up today. Um, you know, it's, it's been an, an honor uh, to, to talk with you, Ryan. And, uh, I guess we will see you all next week for our next episode of the Esports forever podcast. Thank you.